This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman, and I'm your host for today's interview, and I'm speaking with Julie Carr. Dr. Carr is professor of English at the University of Colorado Boulder and is the author of Mud, Blood, and Ghosts, Populism, Eugenics, and Spiritualism in the American West, which came out with the University of Nebraska Press just earlier this year in 2023. Welcome to the New Books Network. Julie, good to have you here. Thank you, Steve. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, why, don't, why, why don't we start by just hearing a little bit about you. Um, what is your background? What got you interested in literature, in history, and in storytelling? Um, just tell us a bit about who you are as an author and a scholar and a person. Sure. Um, so I am a poet, um, primarily. I was... Um, hired by the University of Colorado in 2006 to teach in the creative writing program. So most of the teaching that I do or most of my academic work is in creative writing, um, teaching poetry. And that's, you know, most of the work that I've published is in that genre, um, though a lot of my work does cross over into prose and different kinds of prose. Uh, I did write an academic book. Um, which you know no one needs to read <laughs> for my dissertation but um this is the first book that i've written that is uh, dealing so directly with history and with that kind of historical research uh, behind it um i guess i should say also that you know i'm a former dancer um so i think in some ways that experience of having been a dancer informs at least one moment in this book and in a certain way in terms of the movement of the writing and informs all of the writing that I do. Um, yeah, those are some of the things. Um, well, we'll talk more specifically about the writing in this book in a little bit, but um, you know, hearing a little bit more about your background, it explains this book a bit more. I mean, I do a little bit of research about the book beforehand, and obviously I've read the book, um, and I pick books that look interesting, but um, everything that you just said about you know your background as a, as a dancer and how that informs your writing and everything, that explains a lot about why this book kind of looks and reads the way that it does. Um, 
And I'm curious what brought you to the topic of this book, because again, as we'll, as we'll talk about, it, it's a pretty personal book in, in a lot of ways. So I'm curious what introduced you to this specific family story and kind of in a broader sense, what did it feel like writing this book? What was the experience of, of writing this like? Because it's, it's you know, I, I myself am writing a very academic book right now, and I imagine that writing this was very different than the experience that I'm having myself. Yeah, um, probably. Um, so I... I've written quite a bit about my mother and my mother's side of the family. Um, she was Jewish. Um, there's a lot of uh, stories there, um, but also just that's that, that's the side of the family that, for whatever reason, I had found myself in a literary way, you could say, identifying with or or engaging with, um, and. I always have had this sort of question as to why I hadn't written more about my father's side of the family um, and knew that there was maybe something to explore there just in that, um, I guess you could say, sort of resistance to writing or, or difficulty to writing about, about him or about them. Um, so that's, that's one part of it was sort of knowing that at some point um, I would be doing that and I didn't know exactly what that would mean or what what that would look like. Um, at the same time, um, my father's grandfather, who is at the center of this book, um, was a kind of mythological figure in the family. He had been um, a founding member of the Populist Party, as we'll talk about, I'm sure, um, in the 1890s. And because of that, you know, and because of his kind of um, fiery speeches, some of which you can find online, um, he had this kind of aura of being a, a radical, um, maybe even being an anti-capitalist, being a progressive in a kind of contemporary um, lingo kind of way. And I grew up in a family that was very uh, liberal in Cambridge, Massachusetts, you know, anti-war parents um, in the Vietnam era and um, lots of other engagements with that kind of um, activism. And so for those reasons, he held a kind of place of pride, I guess, in the family. Um, and also, in a weird way, like ancestors can, you know, a kind of, um, uh, I don't know, a kind of a, a funny stories. You know, there were a lot of funny stories about him. He was kind of, in a sense, a little bit comic. But, um, but at the same time, it was 2016, the summer of 2016. Um, so as Trump was getting nominated and, you know, would be elected, though, of course, we didn't know that then. Um, the word that was used to describe him and his followers in the press was populism. And there was just dozens of books about uh, populists and populism uh, coming out. And, of course, I was thinking, hmm, you know, my great-grandfather was a populist. Um, this word means something to me, which is, seems to be quite different uh, from what it means to... Um, to the press as we, or to people in general, as we speak about uh, Trump followers and Trump himself. So that became a kind of curiosity right there. At the same time, 2016, same period was uh, when the um, Standing Rock, um, you know, uh, camp was happening and the water protectors um, were gathering and that became a huge movement as we remember. And I live in Colorado, so Standing Rock, you know, being a, a thing that happened in the West, you know, we were very, very aware of, of that event. And many people I knew went there. I didn't go. But 
because of Standing Rock and of course many other things um, that were happening, you know, around me and, and with people I knew, um, I felt this that I was compelled to look at settler colonialism from that personal perspective. Like what did it mean to my family to have been settlers in Nebraska? So these were the two um, kind of wedges of curiosity that sent me towards uh, the archive, which I also knew that it existed, which was this 2000 page autobiography he had left behind. So I knew it was there, I knew it was in Nebraska. I knew that no one in my family had read it. So I guess you could say there was a very personal drive, a sort of writerly or maybe even emotional or psychological drive to write about my father's side of the family. And then there was these two big political events that were happening that seemed extremely relevant to the story that I knew to be there. Um, as far as how it had felt to write it, um, that's a complicated question because the book has many aspects to it. So some things feel one way and some things feel another. Um, in some ways it was very fun um, because I hadn't done this kind of book before and I got to really just dive into topics that I was curious about, in some cases didn't know much about. Um, I got to you know, give myself permission to just read a huge amount of material. Um, I got to do some traveling. Of course, COVID came along and cut that short, but I got to do some traveling into archives uh, before that. Um, and so all of that sort of information gathering was incredibly um, enriching, exciting, and fun. Um, the writing itself, though, um, until I found, I guess you could say, my voice in it, which I think of more as my rhythm. When I think about voice, I think about rhythm in writing or music in writing. So until that uh, sort of established itself, I guess you could say, it was really difficult. It felt sort of boring. It felt like I was reporting on, on facts, which is not how I generally write. And I was sort of dismayed by how boring it felt. Um, but then I, the music kind of found its way, and then it became, uh, in some ways, deeply pleasurable. Now, there's a whole other side to it I know we'll talk about, which is as I researched and read uh, this man's autobiography, I began to understand the deep racism, um, anti-black racism in the family, and also began to um, encounter his long, many decades long commitment to eugenics, and how far that went and what that really meant. And that material was intensely painful to encounter, though in some ways not a surprise, um, and to write about. So, I mean, maybe that's its own separate question. Um, uh, so yeah, that, that became a different kind of um, writing. Well, I have one more question about the writing, um, and and I like that term that you used. That it was about finding your your rhythm within um, the, the 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 kind of writing process itself. And you know, I, I I have a lot of academics and scholars of all different kinds on the show to talk about their academic books, and there's a range of writing styles, but generally they fall within a sort of like what you might call like an academic tone, for better or for worse. And as I said a second ago, and as 
you were just alluding to, this book is written in a tone that's pretty unlike the usual books that I have on this show, and it kind of made it a bit of a joy to read on my part. So I'm wondering if you could talk a bit more about this this voice that is seemingly so much your own in the book. Can you tell me a bit about what brought you to making this particular stylistic choice? Why you you decided to, as you put it, find this this rhythm and, and make yourself and your voice such a presence in the book? Yeah. Um... Well, I mean, in some ways, writing, finding a voice or finding a style or a rhythm is not a choice. Um, it's something that comes to you, I think. I, th- I think it's something that the material brings to you rather than, than that you impose on the material. Um, so it isn't as if I said to myself, oh, I will now write in such and such a way. But I think you could say that um, I knew from the start that I would be a presence in the book. Um, and that with that uh, presence comes a, di- a different kind of engagement with um, sensation or emotion, right? I mean, if you're there, then your experience is there, which includes your own, um, you know, your own uh, sensory experience, your own memories, um, your own emotional experiences, your own dreams. Dreams uh, play a place in this book. Um, And part of that was because of things I had been reading. So um, one of the big influences on this book is Christina Sharp's In the Wake. Um, That book, um, which uh, is, is, um, if readers don't know it, it, you know, it's a book that's dealing with anti-black racism um, across uh, many different sort of facets of not just contemporary life. And um, so it has kind of a broad a broad uh, spectrum, I guess you could say. Um, and w- I think maybe the first line of the book is something like, um, I didn't go to my sister's funeral, right? So the self and the, and the self's experiences, uh, the self's family um, is central to the book, uh, even though she does a huge amount of uh, research, historical research and other kinds of research as well. Um, that book, another one being Avery Gordon's Ghostly Matters, another one being Colin Dyan's um, The Law is a White Dog, uh, and another one being Brandon Shimoda's uh, Grave in the Wall. And all of these books, um, Brandon's, uh, Shimoda's book is, is not academic, I guess you could say. It's really in the realm of creative nonfiction, but it's dealing with history. The other three are classified, I guess, as academic books, but they're written with the sense of the presence of of the writer. Um, And with that, a kind of, I guess you could say, a poetics. Um, That was really important to me in a political way, not just because I'm a writer and so I write in this way, but because I really guess not being a trained um, historian, I really don't believe in and I don't know if people really do, anyone else does, but I don't believe in uh, a kind of objective or distanced uh, approach to history or really any topic. Um, So there's really no way I couldn't be present in the book if I was gonna be true to what I felt the book needed to be about and um, if I was gonna be true to my own sense of kind of the ethical ethical responsibility of the writer. yeah, so I guess those are some some answers. Um, there was a deliberate. I guess one. I guess one thing I could say that was deliberate was a sense of timing, right? So writing along about a topic, let's say, 
I don't know, the Swamp Lands Act, right? I do need to explain to people what the Swamp Lands Act was uh, and its effects on Indiana in order to get to why I'm talking about it at all. Um, and so that's a kind of maybe a drier, um, ironically, a, a drier telling, <laughs> uh, sorry, a drying, uh, you know, kind of drier sort of uh, reporting, I guess, on historical information. Um, but, you know, um, at a certain point in the, in the rhythm of the chapter, there's got to be a shift or I'm going to find myself um, too far away from the material or I'm going to feel that the material is getting boring um, or too weighty. And so that's going to be a shift um, in the chapter, in the body of the chapter itself towards um, kind of where, where am I the writer, you know, where's the self right now? You know, like I went to Indiana to see what I could find of the swamps that had existed there, you know, to bring myself in at a moment when it feels as if, okay, that's enough information for now, you know, and we'll come back, you know, so that the kind of shaping of chapters is much more deliberate than the, what I was saying, the sort of music of the writing or the music of the sentence, which itself kind of emerges from the work itself, if that makes sense to you. It does. It does. And we, we have, a, we have a, whole, a whole fascinating story to get to. So I won't belabor this point about, about the writing too much longer. But, you know, you, you, you talking about, um, you know, this sort of idea of objectivity and everything that's in a lot of history writing. I, you know, I would say that most historians today probably don't think of things, think of themselves as some kind of objective eye. But I think what you're getting at is that a lot of history writing, as someone that is a historian myself and reads a lot of history writing and falls into this trap as well, you know, it has this sort of detached prose style where, you know, even if there's no pretense of objectivity, the writing itself can often feel very like omniscient narrator telling a story. And I guess I just found it very refreshing and frankly, a bit more interesting to read that I got a sense of who you were as a person trying to understand the story as you went through it. And uh, again, speaking as a historian and maybe speaking for historians, I think that there's something for us to learn there in reading a book like Thank this. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I probably in some ways following my own readerly interests as well. Um, yeah. So thanks for that. Well, Let's let's get into into the story a bit here. And the book begins with with a birth, with the birth of your great grandfather, Omer. Uh, excuse me, Omer Kem. Um, who was Omer, and why is he the starting point for the story? And why, in many ways, is he the main character for for the story that you tell here? Um, well, in a sense, he's the main character uh, because he wrote the autobiography, which is the central archive, 2,000 pages. Um, and he centers himself, you know, as people do. Um, so that's one reason. Um, another reason is because, as I said, he became a populist. But let me kind of just start with the very basics of his, of his narrative. Um, he was born in Indiana um, in, uh, into, basically into poverty. Um, he uh, became independent from his parents very young, uh, 16, and tried to be a farmer um, because of the Swamp Lands Act that I mentioned earlier. Um, this uh, meant was very, very difficult to do for a poor person in Indiana at that time. This is in the 1870s, really. Um, there was very little land that one could purchase. Um, 
and so he, you know, if you were not wealthy, and so he um, lived off rented land. He was a hand-to-mouth tenant farmer, and if you read the story, it's pretty clear that he wasn't able to make a profit ever, not even a single year. Um, so every year he sells, or not sells, but moves on from that piece of rented land to the next one, and usually to be able to move, he has to sell whatever uh, cow he might have or tool he might have. Um, gets married extremely young. The, you know, of course, the children uh, are are dying. <laughs> uh, two of them and others are survive. Um, but um, because of all of this, he takes advantage of the Homestead Act and moves to Nebraska in 1881. Um, that's where the sort of settler colonial um, history that I talk about begins. Um, I'm very interested in kind of what that relationship between those settlers who came on the Homestead Act uh, and the native people that they were displacing, what the, that sort of dynamic was, uh, what, you know, what they knew about it, what they felt about it, what they thought about it, um, uh, how they participated in that, in that removal. So he arrives in Nebraska um, and uh, immediately can't make uh, things work there either, um, even though he has now land because of the fact of the of the of the you know the drought that hits Nebraska in those years and the whole plains uh, area um, so eventually um, he gets involved in the farmers Alliance which is a early sort of precursor to the populist movement um, and through the farmers Alliance he um, joins or, or joins up with others to start what was then called the People's Party um, becomes the populist party um, he was nominated to run for Congress um, and is elected to represent Nebraska's third district. And along with um, a handful, I think it was, uh, and I'm forgetting, nine or ten, other populace goes to Congress in 1891. Um, he stays for three sessions. Um, while there, he becomes a spiritualist. And um, I would love to talk about the branch of spiritualism that he adheres to, so we can kind of come back to that. Um, but, and that's the ghosts in the title. Um, after this, um, he is back in, uh, moves back to the West, is in Colorado. Um, and after a little bit more time uh, ranching and farming in Colorado, he uh, moves to Portland. That's when he gets involved in the eugenics movement. And so for the last like 35, 40 years of his life, he becomes obsessed, like truly, truly obsessed with eugenics, with racial purity, um, and um, writes about it really endlessly in letters uh, to editors and other kinds of um, documents. Um, so that's really who he was. Um, there's, of course, more detail. Um, but why he's the center is really because of, um, as I said, you know, I was very interested in the in this question of populism, wanting to understand it, and as he was this figure in populism, um, that became something I needed to, you know, I needed to research through him. Um, there are other characters. Uh, many of his children play big roles, as do lots and lots of other people in the book. 
Um, well, that's that's a that's an excellent kind of thumbnail look at his life, and there's so many questions that I want to ask about pretty much everything that you just said there. But let's start with his with with, with his journey to Nebraska, because uh, as you said a moment ago, his relationship to um, native people and to native land and his uh, participation in settler colonialism is uh, it really informs a lot of what what this book is about, and throughout the book. You know, you use Omer's life as this window into the history of late 19th century and early 20th century America. So I'm curious about how his time in Nebraska and his movement west uh, at the end of the 19th century, how he kind of represents these larger processes at play in the American West. Yeah. Well, I mean, just to put that in some context, and I'm sure that, you know, your listeners know this or, you know, already, but, um, you know, uh, so... From 1800 to 1880, the population of native people in Nebraska, it uh, shrinks from something like, um, you know, 30,000 or 40,000 to about 1,000. So um, that, you know, that's a process that begins really, you know, takes up speed in the in the middle of the 1800s, um, though, you know, populations are diminishing before that. Um, By the time he arrives there, he isn't um, so the the area where he arrives, which is Custer County. Um, there aren't a, a lot of native people um, that he is encountering. Um, most people had already at that point been moved to reservations or to you know Indian territory. Um, but he is aware of uh, a reservation of uh, in, that's far a little bit farther west in Nebraska of Oto Missouri uh, people. And this reservation had been cleared, you could say, right? People had been moved off of it and moved to Indian Territory um, in 1880. So that land, um, there's rumor that that land is now available for homesteading. So when he got on a train to go to Nebraska, that's where he was headed. And that was very interesting to me because it showed me that he and others, you know, all the other people who were doing what he was doing, um, they, it wasn't as if they were like, oh, there's no native people on the land, I'll go get you know, free, open, empty land. Not at all. They were fully aware that this land had been occupied uh, by native people um, until you know, a minute ago. And because those people were, were being moved or removed, um, then that land was now available to them. So that was one clue to me that um, you know, there wasn't a sort of um, maybe obliviousness to the process that they were participating in. In fact, there was a full, 100% full awareness of the process of removal that they were participating in. Um, so that's an important, like an important piece. Um, so once he, you know, once he is uh, in Custer County and once he becomes a populist, he um, goes to Congress and is placed on the Indian Affairs Committee as a Western person that was sort of the norm. And on that committee, he legislates for further removals of Ute people at this point from uh, Southern Colorado. There was a, a discussion of removing the Ute people from the reservation in Southern Colorado to a different reservation in Utah. And he advocates for that removal at the same time, though, um, I mean, quite literally at the same time, he gives a speech to Congress that argues against um, boarding schools for Indian children. Um, the argument is based on 
his understanding that the settlers had stolen land from Native people that they had no right to, that he had no right to. His, he announces himself fully aware that all violence between Native people and settlers was the fault of the settlers because of the fact of the stolen land. He acknowledges that uh, that boarding schools are a kind of violence. Of course, he doesn't use the word genocide, but he sort of indicates that 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 is the case and that the boarding schools should not exist at all and that uh, Native children should be educated by their parents on their own land. Um, so he makes all of these arguments, but then he goes on to legislate this further removal. So in his case, and I can't say whether this is the case for many people or not, though I suspect it was, there's this dual, um, this sort of dual process. There's sort of words and there's deeds, or there's awareness and then there's, you know, sort of actions nonetheless. Um, there are other legislative um, processes he took part in that also uh, furthered removal or displacement of Native people, not just the one. Um, so that became something that I needed to understand or, or, or and I guess maybe work with um, in the writing was how a person um, kind of processes their own inconsistencies or contradictions uh, between what they know to be right and how they behave anyway. Um, yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Let's talk a little bit more about Omer's uh, uh, time in office, because this is how we start to understand his connections uh, to this modern day idea of populism. Can you talk a little bit about Omer's, you know, uh, uh, seemingly kind of complicated or at the very least, very, the least to me, fascinating politics and what it says about 19th century populism more broadly and its connection or lack of connection to the way that term gets thrown around in the, the kind of contemporary era? So, um, as I mentioned, the populist, populism grew out of the, the farmers' alliances, which were all over the country. But populism, that movement itself, is very much uh, a kind of Midwestern or Plain States and also Southern States um, movement. And it's developed out of a kind of desperation, really, of poor farmers who um, cannot really get ahead. and. One of the reasons they can't get ahead in the West is because of railroad rates, right? The railroads are unregulated. They charge whatever they want for import and export. Um, they're basically exploiting the people who uh, totally depend upon them. Um, another reason they can't get ahead is because of uh, banking policies and uh, the lending industry, right? They, um, Generally speaking, they all more or less all uh, need to mortgage their land or portions of their land to once they arrive, you know, to kind of get going. And the, the lending industry is also not regulated. Um, so these two forces and, and others, um, sort of the non-regulation of crop prices, means that the farmers are really in a 
pretty much desperate situation, especially when the weather is bad as it was at that time. Um, uh, so <clears throat> they develop a kind of politics of, I guess you could call it a kind of, um, maybe, <laughs> maybe one way to talk about it is this kind of a soft socialism, right? An idea that the national government is responsible for caring for people and that one of the ways in which it should be caring for people is by nationalizing um, uh, resources um, such as you know um, transportation, communication, banking, those kinds of things, and, and regulating them, um, not allowing them to be privatized or corporatized. Um, so they're, they're, this, of course, is the Gilded Age. They speak out passionately, passionately against income inequality, not just for farmers, but also for workers. So they're very al aligned with the labor movement. Um, and they, um, they are also, you know, thinking a lot about monopolies and uh, ways in which to control the monopoly system. And also, for him, huge topic, taxation, right? So they are advocating for graduated income tax, which did not exist at that time. So they argue for quite a few things that uh, the eight-hour work law is another one, quite a few things that actually do become law during the progressive era, so uh, you know, a couple decades later. Um, <clears throat> but at the time, these things you know, were not in place, so these kinds of protections were not in place, and that was what they were advocating for. Um, they were not really anti-capitalist, though a lot of the ways in which they speak make the, makes them sound anti-capitalist, right? They sound like they're leveling a critique against capitalism as a whole, but really they just wanted, a, I guess you could say, like a bigger piece of the pie, right? They wanted to be able to participate in capitalism and private property um, in a way that, you know, was functional given the um, sort of economic realities that they were facing uh, and the lack of protections from the central, you know, from the, the national government. Um, so that's sort of what populism was about. There's another aspect to it, which is that, which is, you know, fascinating to learn about, which is black populism. Um, and so, you know, Omar Ali is the scholar who's written most extensively about the black populists um, in the South. Um, they had, according to him, I rely on his, his uh, scholarship pretty much entirely around this, but um, they had um, similar goals, but they had other goals as well around, you know, voting protections against, uh, and around um, anti-lynching uh, legislation and, and things that uh, pertained. Um, but what is one of the things that's really interesting about the populist movement is the way that black populists and white populists worked together. Um, so not that it was a perfectly integrated or non-racist um, movement at all, but there was a sense of a shared mission or a shared set of goals. And because of that, um, black populists and white populists did come together at conferences or um, gatherings to um, to work together to create the platform and things like that. Um, and that was actually a kind of a point of pride for some pop white populists that they had this interracial um, coalition. Um, that fell apart, um, but that's an important thing to, uh, to know about, I think. Um, 
And also a lot of women were involved in populism and in the farmers' alliances. Um, and, and that's another thing that I think is distinctive about the movement. Um, so when he came to Congress, these were the things he advocated for. As I said, there were not a lot of uh, populists in Congress. So it's not that they made a lot of headway. It's just that they made a lot of noise. And I think that that is an important sort of bunch of noise to listen to because of the way it speaks to things that um, actually were able to happen during the pro progressive era and goals that I think still pertain to uh, critics of, of sort of American capitalism now. Um, as far as how they compare to, um, you know, sort of Trump era populism, I mean, I think there are actually quite a few you know, I'm not an expert in in the you know contemporary right or far right by any means. You know, I know what you know the average people know, but you know, it seems to me that there are a lot of there's a lot of overlap in terms of the sort of um, the idea of a kind of critique of the elite, a critique of um, you know at least in some cases a critique of income inequalities or. Um, the ways in which people, you know, the phrase had been left behind um, by, um, you know, global capitalism. Um, so I think those things, the sort of economic critiques that you might find in some, uh, some of the language around Trump era populism um, overlaps a lot with the 1890s populists. Um, there's you know, vast differences in that the people that are leading the Trump populist movement are themselves, as we know, the elites. They're their own version of elite. Um, they're not um, themselves, you know, working people necessarily, or, you know, certainly not farmers. Um, and there's all kinds of other differences we could talk about. But th there are parallels, and I think there are other ones we could, we could get into as well around identity um, and whiteness. So the title of this book is Mud, Blood, and Ghosts, and each of those uh, points to one of the one of the key themes in Omer's life and and in the book in in general. Um, we talked about mud a bit, which is land, basically, right? And 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 and, and draw, what is drawing people like Omer into the West to take part in this larger settler colonial mission. And I'm going to talk about uh, blood in a moment, but I'm curious about. Ghosts. Where do the ghosts come out in this story? Why ghosts and what role does spiritualism play here in this story and just kind of in late 19th, early 20th century American life in general? Yeah, well, um, so the, the word ghosts in the title, I guess I want to say first, um, it does refer to spiritualism and I do want to talk about that. But it also, of course, refers to, you know, my ghosts. Um, the family itself um, and, you know, my need to confront, I think, you know, being haunted, the term, you know, might, one way to understand it is to think about it as a way in which we are being asked to confront the past that, or the past is asking us to confront it. Um, <clears throat> and so that um, engagement with ancestors or that engagement with history is a way of uh, speaking with one's ghosts. Um, and one might feel, you know, a different amount of, of being compelled, you know, maybe on an emotional or ethical level at different times. Um, so that, I guess, I just want to sort of mention that as well. 
Um, spiritualism was huge um, in the 1890s. Uh, it had been huge since the 1850s in America. Um, I don't think I'll go into a whole big spiel about all the different kinds of spiritualism, um, just because it would take up a lot of time. And um, But I will say that Omer Kem comes into spiritualism when right at the same time that he sort of comes into populism. So his the first spiritualists who he meets or he, he describes meeting are people he meets when he's on the road campaigning for Congress. Um, they, uh, this uh, one gentleman who he visits, you know, in those days when you were campaigning, you didn't just like go on the internet, you like went to people's houses and slept over <laughs> and hung out for a while and then went to someone else's house. Um, but this one gentleman who he visits um, proposes that they uh, try to call up um, Omer's dead uh, mother. Um, and they do that through a, um, a table that rocks, right? You speak to the table or you speak to the spirit and the table answers in the voice of the spirit by rocking um, and knocking on the floor, you know, with its legs in, in, in a pattern. Um, so he goes on to, when he moves to Washington, D.C., to um, encounter other spiritualists who, uh, through whom he um, has... Um, uh, engagements with his dead relatives, his mother, his sister, his um, one of his children. Uh, the people that he experiences spiritualism with the most are uh, the Blands, who are a couple of um, radicals. They their big topic or their big um, mission is. Indian rights. Um, their idea of Indian rights is much more radical than the Indian Rights Association, um, which was an assimilationist uh, model. Theirs was really an idea of native sovereignty, including land sovereignty. Um, so they were promoting that uh, mission. And, and because of that, um, Omer Kem having arrived and being placed on the Indian Affairs Committee, they invited him to their home. Um, in their home, they had a mediumistic uh, niece who uh, introduced Cam to these encounters with his dead, his ghosts. Um, I, as I write about in the book, it seems like they had a very clear political mission. Um, they were really lobbying him, is what they were doing, and I think they were using ghosts to lobby him um, pretty directly. Uh, but he was completely... Um, he was completely smitten with the with the with them, and he bought into the whole thing. Um, after those encounters, though, is when he develops his most extended relationship with a ghost, and this is with um, somebody who he gives a name to, um, Fleetwind, an imaginary or I believe imaginary um, Native American healer who he finds to be um, in his body. So he discovers that he himself is mediumistic and that the spirit control that has entered him is this Native American healer who he calls Fleet Wind. Um, Fleet Wind, through Omer's body, heals uh, his children when they get sick, heals his wife when she gets sick, um, is sort of present whenever anyone needs some form of healing. And eventually, as Omer ages, um, then Fleetwind 
enters uh, to heal his own body. So he describes Fleetwood visiting him, um, you know, sort of at night and massaging his uh, arthritic limbs and making him feel much better kind of on a daily basis. So the way I, um, you know, I always knew about Fleetwind as a child, I should say. Um, Fleetwind was kind of a character that we talked about. And all of Omer's children, you know, wrote to him about, they would write letters and say, how are you? How was Fleetwind? Like Fleetwind was sort of part of the family, so to speak. Um, and even when I was a child, I thought Fleetwind was real. I didn't know that Fleetwind was a, a spirit at all. I thought Fleetwind was just a person that he was friends with and that had like massage techniques um, for his arthritis. But it turns out that Fleetwind was imaginary. Um, and so the way I understand that, the way I um, analyze Fleetwind's presence in his life is thinking about his uh, settler guilt, which is very clear that he held settler guilt. It's not kind of something I'm projecting onto him. He, he speaks pretty directly about it. Um, so it's a kind of, maybe you could say, a projection or um, a, a return of the repressed or something along those lines where he um, asks the native person in the form of this, this spirit to heal him and his family um, rather than maybe, you know, in some way making amends or in some way adjusting his own sort of life to address the guilt that he holds as a settler. Um, which is a pretty, I think, a pretty standard um, uh, way in which the, uh, what we now would call the racial imaginary, you know, functions um, between, you know, uh, often white people and, and others, uh, people of color, that they might feel that they, they or their ancestors have in some way harmed this sort of desire to be healed rather than to make some kind of gesture of repair. The turn of the 20th century in, in this book, in the story that you tell, brings us also into contact with some people that you knew firsthand, rather than people like, like, like Omer Kem, who, who were more sort of like uh, figures of story in, in your family. We, we encounter your grandmother, and we encounter your great aunt. Um, can, can, we, can we hear a little bit about who they are, and like Omer Kem, how their lives also intersected with uh, systems and themes and processes that are at play in American history in this era, in particular uh, the, the, the movements uh, surrounding eugenics and birth control? Yeah, so um, my grandmother was one of the youngest of the children, um, and her sister Thelma was the youngest. Um, those are the two that I knew. The others had died by the time, you know, sort of I came along. Um, my grandmother plays a small role in the book, really, because um, she, she doesn't actually write ever about birth control or about eugenics. Um, and so she's sort of a figure there as, as a, maybe a, the, the person who I, of course, loved and through whom I learned many of these stories. Um, though, you know, there's some moments where you kind of feel the family's, uh, the family's racism is expressed um, through her, her well, I should say that differently. She herself um, is, is, does, you know, is, is racist at times and does express that, and I do write about that. But the, the, her sister, uh, Iris, is the one who I write about the most. And I never knew Iris, but I came to know Iris through her writing. Um, she was um, 
a farmer in Colorado. Uh, at this point, the whole rest of the family had moved to Oregon. So she was the only one who stayed behind in Colorado and <clears throat> um, married there and raised you know, uh, children and had a farm. Um, and because of that fact, she wrote letters uh, back and forth. And those letters were copied over by Omer and all exist in the autobiography. Much of his autobiography is copied letters. Um, and she was a really beautiful writer. Um, she was a really kind of um, very uh, emotional person. She expresses a lot of longing and a lot of loss being so far from her family. Um, she has a kind of vulnerability to her voice that most of them don't. There's a sort of tendency, I think this is a very standard tendency among kind of Westerners of a certain type, uh, which is to be kind of a little bit uh, mean, a little bit jokey, a little bit defensive, a little bit funny, uh, but not to show vulnerability. And she does. Um, and because of that, and many of the things she says, I really felt a closeness to her through reading her letters and found myself incredibly drawn to her as a figure. Um, and, and really just kind of couldn't, couldn't in a way turn away from, from her and how she wrote and what she said. Um, However, you know, she also, um, so let's talk about birth control. Um, so the birth control movement, uh, the sort of Margaret Sanger-led birth control movement, which begins in the early 20th century, um, of course it follows other birth control movements, but that movement takes off and becomes, you know, kind of a national movement in the early 20th century, in the teens and into the 20s. Um, and she, as a... Omer himself was was kind of a feminist in, in ways. He believed in his children's education, his women, you know, ch uh, daughters' educations. He believed in uh, the right to vote, um, and he supported his his daughters uh, quite a lot in many different ways. Um, and so he believed in birth control, and so did she. Now, what? I was curious about is kind of what that meant to them. Like, why did they believe in birth control? And so I start to read um, their letters that they write back and forth to each other about it. Um, and um, it becomes clear that their, their vision for birth control is really less about liberating women and more about pop controlling populations. Um, uh, let me just sidestep here to talk about Sanger and her movement for a moment. Um, so, as I'm sure a lot of listeners know, you know, Sanger started out as a, as a socialist and then as a member of the Wobblies. Um, she was a radical uh, labor activist and had a really um, expansive and sort of radical uh, vision for liberation, not just for women, but for all people birth control being a huge part of that because of, fundamentally, because of how it would free women and especially poor immigrant women to become um, politically active and to have power. Um, that begins to shift in a way um, in the 1920s when she starts to um, uh, uh, sort of dovetail her movement with the eugenics, the growing eugenics movement. Um, now, eugenics, not all the eugenicists were in favor of birth control. Some of them thought it was a bad idea because it would limit white uh, baby and middle-class babies from, from being born and maybe not so much the babies that they hoped wouldn't be born. 
but um, but you know some eugenicists did believe in birth control and she starts to kind of converse with them and then starts to partner with them in different ways through her publications. Um, so the idea that birth control and eugenics have a lot to do with each other isn't like exclusive to my family. This is just how it was historically across the board pretty much in by the 1920s. Um, so yes, yeah, so Iris um, gives speeches to her women's clubs in Southern Colorado. And in those speeches, she starts to articulate um, the, her support for birth control and the reasons for it, which are essentially articulated as the desire to limit the births of the poor and immigrant, especially the immigrant uh, children who she says are kind of uh, menacing all other children, which I think she, by which she means sort of the children of the white middle class. Um, so yeah, birth control leads in a way into eugenics um, or they continue to kind of feed off of each other as, as movements. And we didn't really get a chance to talk about this either, but, um... But but Omer Kem himself becomes very uh, interested in eugenics as well. Can you talk a bit about his his lifelong or mostly lifelong fascination with with this idea? Um, yes, he becomes obsessed with it, um, and you know advocates writes for writes lots and lots of letters about um, eugenics to newspapers to Congress people advocating for for sterilization. Um, and of course, with eugenics, the, the thing is that, you know, it starts out as this idea of uh, controlling the, the reproduction of people with heritable uh, diseases or conditions. Um, most, you know, what the, you know, sort of widest term being feeble minded people. But of course, it slowly becomes or not, not slowly at all, I should say rapidly becomes um, you know, uh, an idea that you would maybe control the births or the populations of people with all kinds of uh, disabilities, including people considered um, uh, sort of criminal or people with poverty that starts to get, starts to become the idea that people who are poor have a, a maybe a genetic um, disability or a genetic tendency toward poverty and so should not have children. Um, so again and again, you find him or um, he will articulate this idea. And as he does develop it, there's more and more and more kinds of people who he um, places under that umbrella of, of those who's, who should not be um, having children. Eventually, um, it gets, um, he gets uh, so interested in this idea of controlling populations that he semi endorses the idea of um, euthanizing or you know, murdering um, children, babies who are, uh, as he puts it, you know, hopelessly insane. This is not his idea. He gets the idea from you know, reading uh, actually a professor <laughs> in at Willamette University in, in Oregon. Um, but he doesn't fully endorse it, but he certainly doesn't reject it either because eugenics is, I mean, it leads, as we know, you know, obviously from Nazi history, it leads in a way almost necessarily towards a, a genocidal sort of point of view, which I, I would have to say he does adopt. 
Um, so yeah, if we had more time, and I think we're probably running out of time, but if we had more time, you know, I would love to be able to talk more about the ways that I think about um, eugenics and populism and how one might lead to the other, but um, maybe people will end up having to read the book to find that out. That's what I was going to say. Isn't the line always leave them wanting more, right? So if you, if you, if you want to know about this fascinating link, you got you to go find the book. Um, I do. I do have a couple more questions. I want to make sure that we get through, though. One of which is is the way that you you bring the story up to the present day frequently throughout this book, and in ways again we're not going to have time to go much into, but in ways that are are you know, uh, frankly, pretty interesting and and unique. And there's a, a a really amazing interlude in the middle of the book that kind of bifurcates the book in interesting ways. And again, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on here. But I guess to boil this kind of rambling point that I'm making into a question. What is Omer's legacy in your extended family today in terms of politics, in terms of the stories that are told about him? Just how is, you know, to kind of use your, your phrasing from the book, your terminology, how is his ghost still present in, in your family's story today? So, um, yeah, so the interlude is about a, a road trip that I take with my cousin Chris. Um, and Chris uh, lives in Oregon, and um, he is also a direct descendant of Omer. And he is also obsessed, as I was, with Omer's archive and with Omer's you know, story. Um, where Chris takes that, um, and I want to say like, it, I really do have a lot of affection for Chris. We have totally opposite politics, as we talk about all the time. But um, he really took that um, Omer's populism towards, um, for shorthand, I'll just say a MAGA sort of um, Trumpism. Um, that's not all Chris is, and that's not all, all he believes, but he did run for office um, as a Republican on the sort of um, ticket that develops after Trump. Uh, I think we pretty much know all the things that might have gone into that. Um, and he, um, but he believes that Omer is guiding him very much um, towards a kind of politics of, of disruption and of critique, um, and that's where it takes him. Um, the rest of my family, um, I think that it's been a process of coming to terms with the eugenics story because we had the rest of it, but we didn't know about the eugenics. Nobody knew about it until I went and read that material, even though it dominates the sort of second half of Omer's life. Um, and I think that you could just say that, that that's a, been a bit of a struggle to kind of accept that and come to terms with that. And yet it's maybe a little bit of a microcosm uh, or a sort of a model of the struggle that, you know, America has to do as a whole, um, which is to come to terms with the violence and the fascism or fascist thinking in its past. Um, and that's, you know, that includes coming to terms with slavery and its aftermaths and coming to terms with settler colonialism, but not only, you know, also eugenics and anti-immigrant, uh, you know, fervors um, and, you know, flat out fascist alliances um, run through US history. Um, and I think people are 
a lot of that stuff has has not been you know written about outside of academia all that much but now i think after trump it is being written about and talked about a lot um, and so there's you know there are multiple reckonings with history that have to happen and that will be ongoing you know in our nation and probably will never really ever end but um, this seems like one of those moments for us as a whole that we are starting to look at things that that had been somewhat buried not not to not to the specialists but to the general pu public um, so eugenics is one of those things so as my family grapples with that I mean I think it's just everybody needing to grapple with it and understand the eugenics movement and its influence on uh, on the Nazis. I mean, it's really direct and straight ahead influence on the Nazis. And I think people need to understand that um, when they when they think about World War Two and they think about, you know, Hitler and Nazism. Um, so, yeah, it's been it's been a struggle for the family, but it's also been a really, really productive one. And I think a really healthy and good one. Um, so I guess I offer that up. As we begin to wrap up here, there was there was a line toward the end of the book that really stood out to me as, as a way of understanding the complicated figure of Omer Kam and the complicated legacy of all the stuff that we've that we've been talking about here. Um, where where you write Omer Kem lobbied and legislated on behalf of poor farmers and laborers, and he simultaneously excluded those whose labor and land the country had most aggressively appropriated and exploited. This kind of uh, bifurcated nature or complicated nature of, 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 of this person. So, um, you know, again, this is a, a great question to ask, as I'm saying, as we begin to wrap up here. But what do you make of this? What, what explains this contradiction in populist politics like this? How, how do you make sense of, 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 of all this? In a word, white supremacy. <laughs> but um, yeah. To, be, yeah, yeah, yeah. to be less pat about it, um, I think that, you know, it's a it's a question of of identity it's a question of how does a person where do they ground their sense of belonging um do they b ground it in their maybe their class identity do they ground it in their national identity do they ground it in a sense of shared humanity with others or do they ground it in a kind of racialized identity um for omar kim by the 20th century, he is grounding that identity in a racialized, in a sense of his race, a sense of what he believed to be his blood or the purity of his blood. Um, and, you know, the way I understand that is that the sort of original grounding of his sort of identity as an American, as a man, had to do with his relationship to the land. But because that relationship to the land could never be um, fruitful, or realize in the way that he wished it would be. He could never find that independence through his relationship to the land or that sense of belonging to his relationship to the land. He finds it instead in his sense of himself as, as a sort of a, a biological body, um, his blood. Um, so I think that when you see a kind of, a kind of politics that um, values um, equity or fairness or um, a sense of uh, financial justice, but you see it decoupled from uh, any sense of racial justice or, uh, or fairness. Um, what you're seeing there is 
the way in which that politics is grounding um, selfhood in a racialized identity. Um, so, you know, that's what I think we maybe most are grappling with in this country is, you know, thinking about how can we, uh, I, how can we define Americanness um, outside or, or not outside of, that's the wrong maybe preposition, but um, with a sense of uh, a shared belonging that is not um, exclusive to certain racialized groups, um, whiteness. Um, so, you know, I think that that's what we've always been grappling with, and it's certainly something that we're still grappling with. and. That's really the failure of 1890s populism was its inability to do that. And it's really the force, that force of, of um, white supremacy is what drives somebody like Omer Kem into eugenics um, fundamentally. I mean, it's, it's complicated. I don't want to make it sound super boiled down, but there's um, no way to talk about it without thinking about uh, racism and white supremacy in the end. And toward the end of my interviews, I always like to uh, ask my guests uh, to, to, to kind of put themselves in the shoes of their readers. Thinking back on this book that they have read, you know, a year or two or three years down the road, what would you hope that that reader might come away understanding? And maybe you just touched on it a bit in your last answer, but as sort of a summary question, what do you hope someone would remember about your book, thinking back on it further down the line? Mm-hmm. Um... Well, I mean, hmm. I guess, you know, yes, I would hope that people would walk away with it with a sense of the value of um of having of having a faith in in a shared humanity with others. Um of the of the shared value of all living beings. <laughs> if that's not too grand, um, but I guess the other thing that I hope people will gain from reading it and will maybe carry with them is a sense of their own relationship to history, um, their own families, stories, um, their own legacies, whether they're, you know, prideful or shameful or a mix of both, as for most people. Um, I guess I hope that people will feel like uh, history is not far away. <laughs> it's not something else. It's what's with us and around us all the time. Um, and so that they will want to know more about kind of where, where they come from and um, where others come from and understand themselves and others better through that. Um, so those things, and I guess maybe the fact that it was written in a way that isn't, um, as you pointed out, like, uh, wasn't exactly written with the idea of an academic audience or the idea of sort of um, speaking with specialists or historians exactly, or at least not exclusively. Um, I kind of hope that people will feel that history is available to them, like they can learn all of this stuff too, um, and that there's a reason to do so. Um, and that it isn't something that is um, that you have to, you know, have a PhD in in order to to study and to to delve into. Um, so I guess I hope the book is inviting 
in that way. I, I found it to be definitely so. And I thought that it, it did a really good job of sort of being a, a, an advertisement in the best way for family history, right? For being like, you can understand so much about uh, the past if you look at it through the lens of people that are through blood relation or even not blood relation, through any kind of relation that are related to you in some way. It was, yeah, a, a, great, a great advertisement for that kind of history. I oh, good, good, yeah. And then fi finally, finally here, I always like to, when I can, get a preview from my guests about what they are working on next. And sometimes it feels kind of silly when the book has been out for like, I don't know, four months at this point. But, but nonetheless, I'm curious what you've been working on and what we might see from you in the future. Um, well, um, a few things. I mean, um, as I said in the beginning, I'm primarily a poet. And so kind of inevitably, um, that's where I return. Um, but I've been writing um, some, you know, the book ends, we didn't get to talk about this, but you know, the book ends by coming back to the event of World War I, um, which I think I didn't know nearly enough about before I wrote that chapter. Um, and studying World War I, and you know, not in a huge amount of depth, but needing to touch on it and needing to kind of, you know, grasp its effects on American culture, um, led me to think more about the sort of next, you know, 30 years or whatever of, of U.S. and, and global history. Um, so I have been reading, a, doing a, quite a bit of reading of the sort of era between the wars and um, of World War II and kind of inevitably looking at my mother's family that was, you know, the side of the family that was all murdered in Ukraine um, by the Nazis. Um, and I'm not going to write a family history of that side, but I am writing in a way into that material um, in a really different way, uh, through a really different kind of genre and voice. Um, so that's basically what I'm working on. That sounds fascinating, and I wish you the best of luck in, uh, in working on that. Thank you. Dr. Julie Carr is a professor of English at the University of Colorado Boulder and is the author of Mud, Blood, and Ghosts, Populism, Eugenics, and Spiritualism in the American West, which just came out in 2023 with the University of Nebraska Press. Thank you so much for joining me today, Julie. Thank you, Steve. It was really fun to talk to you.